Gary already mentioned a few things about Emmanuel, but I thought I would just tell you a few more things. Uh, been, this is probably Kim and I's 14th youth rally with, our, with the Central Church of Christ here. And in that time, we've had several uh, preachers that have come through and uh, spoken to our, blessed our youth with great lessons. And uh, we've had people from varying ages come. We had one guy who was 76 years old. And when he was, he came from Oklahoma. And when he went to cross the border, dealt with the border people, they asked him, so what are you here for? And he said, well, I'm here to speak at a youth rally. And they looked at him and said, excuse me? Well, we have somebody from the other side of the spectrum, somebody who is uh, only 21 years old. That's going to be speaking to us. Um, he's got wisdom beyond his age. We have, like Gary said, been blessed by all your lessons, Emmanuel. And uh, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot to mull over. And uh, even uh, while we were at home, we were still talking about what we learned uh, from your lessons. And young people, uh, you know, sometimes we wonder what we can do for Jesus at a young age. Well, Emmanuel years ago, was 17 years old uh, in a high school and uh, he was wanting to share his faith. And so at his high school, he started up a little Bible study, started with, I think, two or four people. And by the end of it, it grew to 24 people in his high school, in a public school. And after uh, being in high school, he was ready to graduate and when he graduated, he decided he wanted to make ministry a part of his career choice. And so he decided to uh, enroll at um, Sunset School of Preaching, do courses online. And uh, while he was doing those courses, he was uh, working with the Camrose Church. And uh, he worked there for about two and a half years. And then an opening came up for him to move to Edmonton. Uh, so he moved on to Edmonton and he's been working with that congregation for uh, about a, nine months. And in the, in the capacity as a youth minister and also doing uh, uh, some preaching. So uh, we are just grateful that you're here with us. We welcome you. And uh, you'll see that he's wearing a shirt that says all in for Jesus. Um, the, this is a shirt that we had made up. For all of our youth, so they each got one in the chaperones, and uh, so that's why he's wearing his All In For Jesus shirt. That's the theme for our youth rally. So, would you please join me in welcoming our speaker, Emmanuel Bernstad, to the stage. All right. Good morning, everyone. As Chad said, for the past few days, I've had the chance to speak to your youth. Uh, which I was very, very excited about. I've only known Chad for, I think, nine months. And every time I've seen him, which has only been a handful of times, uh, we've talked about the possibility of me coming here and doing a youth rally. And so it's only nine months that we actually met, and now I'm here doing a youth rally. So I'm very excited about that. As Chad mentioned, my name is Emmanuel, and if I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, uh, I look forward to doing that today. As he said, I'm only 21 years old, but I'll be 22 in a week, and so that, you know, you know, if that means anything to you. Uh, and young preachers, I think, sometimes face a bit of, I don't know, 
sometimes people not take them as seriously or people might think they're, they're not ready. But I think of the passage in 1 Timothy 4.12 and Paul just says to Timothy, don't let your age be an excuse. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Don't let that be a reason someone looks down on you. But he says you're young, so be an example. Be an example in speech, in love, in faith, and in purity. And so that verse has really spoken to me, and I remember that, and that I remind myself of that all the time, that I can't let my age be a reason for people to look down on me. I have to be the example, uh, not just to the youth, but to everyone in the church as well. So I try to be that example, and that's the message I share with the youth back in Edmonton, is be that example, and don't let your age be an excuse for people to look down on you. As Chad said, I, I left high school I took the summer off and I went right into ministry. And so I've been at it now for four years, almost five. And I was in Camrose, my hometown. I did an internship with the church there for about three and a half years and then came to Edmonton. And I'll be talking more about my work in Edmonton tonight. I believe what time is evening worship? Six o'clock, six o'clock. So come back here at six o'clock. I'll share a little bit about what we're doing in Edmonton. Um, but I'm just so excited to see how God is moving through us there in Edmonton. The past few days, I have been able to speak about what it means to be all in. And as you see the shirt, all in for Jesus, that's what we've been talking about. And I've never actually worn a t-shirt preaching before, but I was asked to. And so if anyone doesn't like my t-shirt, just realize I was asked to. I did bring a dress shirt I was planning on wearing, but I'm perfectly fine with this. This shirt really symbolizes what we've been talking about, being all in for Jesus, being all in for Jesus. And basically what that means, being all in for Jesus, is just completely letting go of ourselves. Being all in for Jesus is letting God have everything and not holding anything back. And we see that sometimes in Scripture that is a problem for people. Sometimes people want to hold things back. And if you look in our own lives, we know that's probably true. Sometimes we want to be all in, but there's something we want to keep. We want to, we want to be all in, but at the same time have, have one foot in the world. And so we looked at three different stories this weekend. We looked at the story out of Genesis chapter 38, which is the story of Judah and Tamar. And for those of you who were here at the youth rally, we'll do a little bit of review. Uh, there are a lot of people who weren't here, but if you were here, this is review, unless you weren't paying attention. In that case, wake up, because we're doing review. So if you didn't listen all weekend, now is the chance to get everything you missed. In Genesis 38, we talked about the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, Judah is this guy who has a very messy life. You know, and, and I say, if you, if you think that people in the Bible have their lives together and that they're perfect, read the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, because your mind will be blown Because it teaches us and it tells us that people in the Bible don't always have their lives together. They aren't perfect people. So there's this guy named named Judah. And he has a bad friend. He's got a wife who's a Canaanite. And he has three kids. He finds a, a, a wife for his first son. But his first son is so wicked that the Lord puts him to death. We don't even know what he did. It doesn't, doesn't tell us. It just says he was so wicked that the Lord put him to death. And so there's one son gone and his wife is left a widow. His wife is left a widow because her husband is so wicked. And so then Judah goes to his second son who's not married. His name is Onan and God says, or Judah says to Onan, 
Go and sleep with your sister-in-law. And when I told this story to the youth, their eyes kind of opened when I said that. Like Judah said, go sleep with your sister-in-law. And it sounds really weird to us that Judah would ask such a thing. But in their society, it wasn't really that weird. In their society, if someone had died without having a child, uh, their brother would step in, sleep with a dead brother's wife, only for the purpose of having a child, so that his name could live on, because that's how their names lived on. They didn't have history the same way we have history books. And so if you wanted to be remembered, it would be through your kids. If you had no kids, your brother had an obligation to provide a child in your name so your name could be remembered. And so Onan is fine with sleeping with his sister-in-law. He goes ahead and he sleeps with her, but he doesn't want to get her pregnant. And so Genesis 38.10 says that he spills his semen on the ground when he sleeps with her. He's fine with sleeping with this woman, but he doesn't want to provide a child for her. And that's wrong on two levels. First of all, it's wrong because his dad asked him to. All right? It's wrong because his dad asked him to, but it's also wrong because I think he's a little bit upset with his dead brother. I think he's doing this out of spite, that he does not want his brother's name to go on and live in history. And so he sleeps with his brother's wife, but he won't provide a child for her. He won't provide a child for, for his dead brother so his name could live on. And you just look at this story and you go, that, that's kind of weird, but it gets weirder. Because this, this daughter, Tamar, this daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's got two kids, she's got two husbands who die. The first one dies, the second one dies because he's so wicked and he won't provide a child for her. And so Judah's left with one more son who he can provide a child, or one more son he can provide a child for Judah, for Tamar. And so he can do that, but this third son, Sheila, he's too young. And so what he does, he says to Tamar, he says, you know, you can go back to your father's house. Go back to your father, so I rest assured that I will get in touch with you. I will get in touch with you. When this third child is old enough, I will send him to you, and I will make sure that he provides a child for you. So Judah sends his daughter-in-law off with a promise that one day I will send a son who will provide a child for you. Well, the Bible says that a long time passes. Don't know exactly how long, just a long time passes. And in that long time, Judah's wife passes away. Judah's wife dies. And so after a long time, Judah goes to a sheep shearing party. He goes to a sheep shearing party that is up in Timnah. And remember, it's been a long time since he's seen Tamar. And so Tamar is wondering, where is Judah? Where is my father-in-law? Because he made a promise to me. He promised that he would provide his third child for me so I could have a son. Where is Judah? But she gets word that Judah is passing through town on this way to the sheep shearing party. And to make a long story short, she takes matters into her own hands. She realizes that this promise is not going to be kept, that if she's going to have a child in this family, she's going to have to take matters into her own hands. And what she does is she dresses up like a prostitute and she stands on the side of the road where Judah will be passing by and she waits for Judah. And Judah comes up to her and he thinks she's a prostitute. He has no idea that he is speaking to his daughter-in-law when he says the words, come and sleep with me. He thinks he's just talking to a prostitute, but he's talking to his daughter-in-law. Well, anyways, he gets her pregnant. 
He gets her pregnant. And a few months later, he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and he wants her to be burned. He says, bring her out and let her be condemned. Let her be burned. He is so mad at her because she has sinned. But he's the one who got her pregnant. He's the one who got her pregnant. He finds out that he's been busted and that he has gotten her pregnant and now everyone knows what he's been up to. And everyone knows that she's not the only guilty one, but he is also guilty. It's a really really messed up story if we're being honest with ourselves. It's kind of strange. It's a bit messy. But did you know that those two kids that Judah and Tamar had together, those kids that they have together, end up in the genealogy of Jesus. That this messed up encounter, that this sinful encounter, ends up being in the family tree of Jesus. That in Matthew 1, where, where Matthew is recounting the family of Jesus, there are people like Abraham, pretty good guy, David, Pretty good guy. Those guys are mentioned in Jesus' family tree, but so are Judah and Tamar. This awkward, sinful, messy encounter is recalled in Matthew 1. And Matthew says that Judah and Tamar were part of bringing Jesus into the world. And so the message there for us is that God is not limited by us. God is not limited by our sin. And if God can use people like Judah and Tamar to bring Jesus into the world... And he can use someone like myself. And he can use someone like you to show Jesus to the world. Our sin does not prevent us from being all in. And God wants all people to be all in. And that's the message we learned Friday night. Yesterday we looked at two people. And as the slide says, we looked at the saint. Looked at the saint. A guy who looks like he had never sinned. Someone who we would call a saint. You know, someone who, this guy does not look like he has ever sinned. And his name is Nicodemus. And he's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. So he's someone who is a religious teacher. He's got a clean life. He knows his Bible. He teaches his Bible. And he enforces his Bible. This is not the kind of person who just regularly attends worship. This is someone who leads worship. This is someone who, when you have a question, you ask someone like Nicodemus. Because he knows his Bible. Because he's worked hard to become a Pharisee. So this is not just someone you would, you would see at church. This is someone who would be up front speaking to you. Someone who you would look to as a leader. Someone who you would already assume is all in for Jesus. You would just look at his life and you'd go, look at his life. He's got such good works. He knows his Bible. Of course he's already all in. We learn that just because someone looks like they're all in doesn't mean they are. Just because someone has the look doesn't mean that they're actually all in. When we first found Nicodemus in John 3, we find that he is, he's not as committed as we might think. He's committed to his religion. But is he committed to God? Is he committed to God's Son? In John 3, he's not committed. He's more curious. He comes to Jesus in a private meeting as night. This is funny because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? So his day job was to meet with other rabbis and to meet with religious leaders. And so during the day, Nicodemus had every opportunity he wanted to, to go and meet Jesus. He could have met Jesus during the day, but he comes to Jesus at night. And I think the reason for that is Nicodemus is playing it safe. He wants to meet Jesus. He's curious. He wants to know Jesus, but it's going to be on his terms. He's going to meet Jesus, but it's going to happen at night when it's most comfortable, when he can get into Jesus' presence without anyone else finding out. He wants to be with Jesus, but he wants no one else to know about it. That's where we first find him. He's curious, but he's, he's not committed. 
What would his other Pharisee friends think if he left his high position as a Pharisee to follow a homeless carpenter from Nazareth? People would think he's insane if he left his position as a Pharisee to follow Jesus. But Nicodemus moves from being more than curious. In John chapter 7, we find him in a meeting where people are talking about how they're going to get rid of Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. They want to get rid of him. So there's this meeting of Pharisees, and they're all trying to figure out how they're going to get rid of Jesus. And Nicodemus is sitting in that meeting. I imagine he feels pretty awkward because he doesn't, he doesn't mind Jesus. He kind of likes Jesus. No one else knows that. But they're all talking about how they're going to get rid of him. And Nicodemus is sitting there, and he knows Jesus. He's met with him at night, and no one else knows. And so while they're trying to figure out how they're going to get rid of Jesus, Nicodemus pipes up, and he says, Are you sure this is right? Are you sure we can, we can condemn a man like Jesus without first hearing what he's been up to? Are you sure what we're doing is right? And it might not seem like that's a big leap of faith, but for Nicodemus at that time in his life, when everyone else around him wants to get rid of Jesus, as soon as Nicodemus says anything about Jesus that's not negative, he risks his reputation. He risks his reputation, his job as a Pharisee. He could lose that. He could lose his place in the Sanhedrin. He could lose his place in society. He could be kicked out of the synagogue. He could become a total marginalized citizen because of what he just said. He didn't say much. He just said, are you sure it's, it's okay to condemn a man without first hearing what he's been doing? And that's why the last time we find Nicodemus, he's going all in. And he's helping Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Jesus off the cross and he is anointing Jesus' body for burial, and he's preparing Jesus' body, and he's placing it in a tomb. And what he is saying there is, I don't care what anyone else thinks about my relationship with Jesus. I don't care if other people see me prepare Jesus' body for burial. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I want this relationship with Jesus, and that's all that matters to me. And I don't care who knows about it. And that's a long way from where we first met him, from meeting Jesus at night to preparing Jesus' body He goes from a secret disciple to someone who just says, I don't care, I just want to follow Jesus, and I don't care who knows about it. And so for him, he went all in. He risked his reputation, he risked his job, he risked his place in society, but he gained Jesus. Last night we looked at the sinner. She's not like Nicodemus. In fact, she's the complete opposite of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, this woman was a prostitute. Complete and total opposites. These people are not the same kind of person. She is someone who does not live by God's law. She's someone who does not know God's law. And she crashes a party. Jesus is over at a Pharisee's house, and they're eating supper together. And this woman comes in, and she is obviously not invited. She's not invited to be at the Pharisee's house. But she comes, and she crashes the party. And she gets messy, and she gets loud. She just falls at Jesus' feet, and she starts crying. She cries so much that she provides enough tears to wash Jesus' feet with. She provides enough tears from crying to wash Jesus' feet. Something that should have already been done. This should have already been done. Someone should have already washed Jesus' feet at the Pharisee's house. It was a common practice to wash feet. It should have already been done, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was like a slap in the face to not wash someone's feet, yet Jesus' feet were not washed until the sinful woman comes in. 
and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Then she takes her hair and she dries them and she pours her perfume out at Jesus' feet. This perfume that, that she used as a prostitute. If you were a prostitute in her day, you needed to have perfume. Perfume was your way of advertising. Perfume is your way of letting other people know that you were a prostitute and that you were open for business. Her perfume was her identity. It's who she was. Everything she was and everything she knew was wrapped up in this tiny bottle of perfume. Her job, her life, her identity, her sin, her job, everything in this bottle of perfume. And this bottle of perfume she just pours out at Jesus' feet. And when she pours perfume at Jesus' feet, she's pouring her entire life out. And she is saying, I am not going back to my job as a prostitute. I am not going back to my life as a sinner. She is getting rid of all that stuff and just saying, Jesus, you take that. You take my sin. You take my shame. You take my guilt, my bad reputation, everything that everyone knows about me. You take that. And when she leaves this meeting with Jesus, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So she reaches a point in her life where you would not expect her to go all in. She is someone who would look at on the street and go, there's no way, you know, she's never going to be all in. Look at the way she lives. You think someone like that could be a follower of Christ? Probably not. But this woman, she goes all in for Jesus. She gives her entire self for him. She goes all in. So as we've been looking at all in, what it means for, for different people in the Bible, what it means for us to be all in for Jesus, we ask the question, why? Why? Why would we go all in? Why would Nicodemus risk his reputation and his job and his life to follow Jesus? Why would this sinful woman come to Jesus crying, wiping his feet with her hair, and pouring her most valuable possession at his feet? Why does she do that? Why does Jesus ask us to go all in for him? Why can't we just go like half in? Why can't we have some of God, some of church, no, some of Bible study, and then some of the world. Why does God ask us to pick a side? Why does God ask us to go all in for Him? And the answer is simple. The reason that God asks us to go all in for Him is because of the Savior. That is why God asks us to go all in. The reason God wants us to be all in for Jesus is because Jesus went all in for us. And I'll say that again because it's important. The reason that God wants us to go all in for Jesus is because Jesus went all in for us. First John 4, 9 gives us that example. It says, we love because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We love our neighbors because he first loved us. We love the world because he first loved us. We lay down our lives because he laid down his first. He has been our example. So we go all in for Jesus because he has gone all in for us. In Jesus Christ, God held nothing back from us. God held nothing back from us. In Christ, God gives us his most valuable possession. He gives us his son, his only son. He holds absolutely Nothing back. And I think of the passage in Matthew chapter 26, where we really see Jesus going all in. It starts with this. Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and he realizes that this is his last night with them. 
It's Thursday night. In the morning, he is going to be crucified. This is his last night with them. And his final words to them, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken from, away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then scripture tells us that he went away a third time and prayed the same thing. Three times Jesus prays, God, if there is any other way, if there is any other way that we, we can save the world, if there is any other way, can we start plan B right now? Can we do that right now? Can we... Can this cup be taken from me? Do we have to go through this? Are we going to do this? Is there any other way? And the answer was no. The answer is no. Three times Jesus wants to be out of this situation. Three times he's wondering if there's something more. But more than Jesus wanted to be out of this situation, Jesus wanted to be all in for his Father. And if going all in meant dying for you and I, then he would do it. If going all in meant that he could save us, then it was worth it. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. He would give us his most valuable possession. He would give us the life of his son so that we could become sons, so that we could become daughters of his. I like the way Romans 8.32 says it. Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. In God's plan to save us, God did not spare his son. God was not in heaven thinking, I love people so much, and I would do almost anything to save them. I would do almost anything to save those people in Winnipeg. God did not say that. God said, I will do anything to save them. He did not give us almost everything. He did give us everything. God held nothing back in, tr in saving us. God held nothing back, but he gave himself completely to us. And so we have salvation in Christ because God held nothing back. We have more than salvation because God really holds nothing back from us. I like this verse. It says, how will he not also give us all things graciously. How will he not give us all things? And I know what you're thinking. Well, I prayed for a sports car. And I prayed for one of those curved OLED TVs. And I prayed for one of those iPhone 7s that don't have a headphone jack. So I also prayed for wireless headphones. And I don't have that yet. You know, why is God holding back from me? I don't have my iPhone 7. I don't have my TV. I don't have my sports car. But that's not what this passage is talking about. We know that. God does not give us everything we, we want. He's not like Santa Claus and he just, we just give him our list and he delivers it to us by the next morning. But God gives us all that we need. Especially here in a place like Canada, we are so blessed. I grew up here, but Edmonton is a very diverse city. And so our church is a very diverse church. And I spend a lot of time talking to people who have grown up in other places and they cannot believe 
the things that we complain about. They cannot believe the things that, that we gripe over. Because we are so blessed here. We have absolutely everything we need. Just think of all the blessings you have. We have, we have like running water. There's transportation here. We have a roof over our head. And even for those who, who aren't as well off and don't have a roof over their head, there are programs in place and services in place to do that. And the church should join in with that. And the church should be a place where those less fortunate can go. But God has blessed us so richly here. And the things that we complain about are usually politics. Maybe, the, maybe our electricity is out or our phone battery doesn't last so long. But these are the things we complain about. You know, we complain about the fact that I had to wake up early to be here. We complain about the strangest things. And, and listening to my brothers and sisters in Edmonton who grew up in other places and the things that they had to go through as children, I have nothing to complain about. God has blessed me so richly here. And whether or not we agree or disagree with our political system, or whether or not we, we uh, enjoy all the first world problems we have, God has given us so much more than we deserve in Christ and in the world. I want you to think of all that you have in, in the light of 1 Corinthians 4-7. Think of everything you have, everything you own, and ask the question, what do you have that God hasn't given you? What is one thing you have that, that you've, you've earned, that God has not given you? What's one thing you have that, that God had nothing to do with? And the answer to that question is nothing. What do you have that God hasn't given you? Nothing. Everything you have is because God has held nothing back. Everything you have is because God has gone all in in giving to you. He's given us his son. He's provided for our needs and given us this wonderful country. And he's blessed us all spiritually. And that's what our scripture reading was about this morning in Ephesians 1.3. He has given us every spiritual blessing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Did you catch that? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. When God thinks of blessing us spiritually, he gives us everything. There is not one spiritual blessing that God goes, you know what? They don't need that. I'm not going to give that to them. But God graciously gives us every spiritual blessing. And the first, of course, is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus that he gives us. But more than that, he gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to guide us, to be our teacher, to be our comforter. He gives us the church as a support network. He gives us his word as food to sustain us. He gives us the promise that he is coming back. He gives us peace from anxiety. He gives us hope and affliction. He gives us the ability to pray to him. Every spiritual blessing God has given to us. There is not one spiritual blessing that he holds back from us. So God has given himself. God has gone all in. He holds nothing back from us. So the question I want to ask you this morning, why do we hold back? Why would we hold back on a God who does not hold back? Why hold back on the God who did not spare his own son so that he could spare you? Why hold back on the God who has blessed us with, his, with this amazing country we live in? Why hold back from the God who, who gives us this building and a place to worship safely? Why hold back? On a God who gives us homes to live in, cars to drive, and safety to enjoy. 
Why hold back when God has given us access to every spiritual blessing? When he has not held back from us, why do we hold back from him? Why do we not go all in for Jesus when he has gone all in for us? And I think there are several reasons why. Maybe like the sinner we talked about yesterday, you you don't feel worthy. Maybe you think you're, you're not worthy enough to be a Christian. A few weeks ago, I was studying the Bible with someone. And we're getting to that point where they're ready to make a decision. And I said, are you, do you think you could, you know, you think you want to become a Christian? And they said, no, I'm not ready. And I was like, okay, because I, I get that lots. People say, I'm not ready. Usually what that means is I don't know enough. And that's, that's fair, you know. You should know what you're committing to before you become a Christian. So I asked, okay, well, what aren't you ready for? And she said, oh, I'm not perfect yet. Okay, that means you are ready. <laughs> if you realize you're not perfect and that you need a Savior, that means you actually are ready. And the way I described it to her was, I'm like, listen, you're not perfect. That's perfect. You're not perfect. That's why Jesus came, to redeem your perfection. And I said, okay, imagine you were like, you're playing a sick game of dodgeball, and you end up like diving for a ball and landing on your arm and it breaks. Imagine like you break your arm. What are you going to do? Go to the hospital, right? You go to the hospital. What you're not going to do is you're not going to say, oh my gosh, I can't go to the hospital. My arm is broken. They're going to see me with my arm broken. What are they going to think when I go there and my arm is broken? They're going to laugh at me and they're going to say, how dumb is that guy playing dodgeball? But when you break your arm, you go to the hospital to get fixed. You go to the hospital to, to be healed. And it's the same way with Christ. We don't bring our perfect lives to Christ and say, all right, God, I'm ready to work with you now because I'm perfect. We bring our brokenness to him. We go to him because we're broken. And he heals us. We don't come to him perfect. We come to him because we're imperfect. And he heals us and he restores us and he transforms us. And so if you're thinking, I really would like to be a Christian, but I'm not perfect, now is the time. Today is the day. If that's the only thing holding you back, then today is the day. Because you never will be perfect, but that is why you go to Jesus. And that is why you need Jesus, is because he perfects you before our Father. Maybe one reason you're holding back is, is because you don't even know you're holding back. Maybe you're like Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and maybe you think you're already all in. And lots of times it's easy to convince ourselves that we're already all in. And so we look deeper into our lives and we go, maybe there is something I'm holding back. Maybe there is something I am holding back from God. And, and if that's you this morning, I just want to ask you to search your heart. Ask God to search your heart. See if there's anything in your life that you're holding back. See if there's anything that you're going, yeah, I'm all in for Jesus, but. I'm, I have everything given to Jesus, but. I'm all in for Jesus, but there's just this one thing. One thing, God, I'm going to keep. If there's that one thing, we're not all in yet. And so I want to you to search your heart and see if there's anything you're holding back and if there is then go all in that's my message to you this weekend go all in hold nothing back because god held nothing back from us god gives us his son he gives us physical blessing he gives us every spiritual blessing in christ so don't hold back on the god who never holds back but go all in one way you can do that this morning is actually through baptism. 
baptism is one of the clearest ways that we say we are going all in. Because in baptism, in immersion, we are completely, totally underwater. We are completely covered in water. There is not one part of our body that remains dry. We go all in. You know, in baptism, it's all or nothing. You go all in. You are completely soaked. When you come up out of the water, there's not one thing left on you that's dry. And that should be the same way it is with following Jesus. We are completely soaked, completely submerged. That we come back from following Jesus and there's not one thing on us that has not been touched. There's not one corner of our heart that Jesus hasn't searched and that Jesus hasn't transformed. And so if you need to be baptized this morning and if you need to go all in, baptism is one way of saying I'm going all in for Jesus. If you haven't done that already, you can go all in by doing that this morning. We're going to sing, There is a Stirring, and I've been praying over the past few weeks and this week that there would be a stirring here this morning, that someone this morning uh, would feel that stirring, someone would know that they need to go all in. And I've been praying for that. I, don't, I didn't know who I was going to be seeing here this morning, but I've been praying for you the past few weeks that this morning that there would be a stirring. And as the words of the song say, Is he calling me? So I want you to ask, Is he calling you? This morning, do you need to go all in? Is there something you need to give to him? Is there something you need to give to Christ this morning and go all in? So as we sing the song, I want to encourage you, hold back. Don't hold back from the God who holds nothing back from you.